we were nobodies. And like, I wasn't even an, a huge NBA fan before this. And suddenly we were like becoming what felt like the Simpsons of the NBA where people were like, oh, I want to be in Game of Zones. And it was just like... Welcome back to the Getting Buckets podcast. This is David. It's Ethan. And uh, today we have a very, very special guest. Uh, hailing all the way from... New York. From New York, okay. Hailing all the way from New York. <laughs> Actually, currently in Massachusetts. Hailing all the way from Massachusetts. It's uh, Welcome to the show, the co-creator of Game of Zones, Craig Malamud. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me on. It's an honor. I'm actually in rural Massachusetts um, at my girlfriend's parents' office. <laughs> it's the place where I get internet. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I've been quarantining here for a couple of weeks. Uh, but normally I'm living in Manhattan. That's where I make Game of Zones. Just before we start, I just want to say that I may be the biggest fanboy of Game of Zones. <laughs> and I'm so happy that you're on the show. Like, I have shared so many laughs from that show and to have you on is is so exciting to me i don't know thank you so much i appreciate that so i think we'll just we'll just get right into it you know i talked to you a little bit um while we were planning this out but i want to just get started you mentioned that uh you're not a big basketball fan (laughs) yeah so i'm curious did you watch basketball growing up and how did you decide to uh make a show about the nba when you are not a big basketball fan in the first place yeah, it's a great question. I um, so I growing up, I have, an, I have an older brother, Adam, and he is about six and a half years older than me, and um, he's a big sports fan, and he always encouraged me to get into sports. So we're from South Jersey, and we root for all the Philadelphia teams, uh, and it was always like the Big Four. Flyers, the Phillies, the Eagles, and the Sixers. And when I was about like 10 or 11, Allen Iverson was doing his thing. Um, and I was a big fan of the Allen Iverson era Sixers. Um, and then when I got into high school and into Wesleyan, um, I uh, stopped paying as much attention to basketball. It was kind of like a, some like dark years for the Sixers. Uh, yeah. The Phillies were really good my freshman year. You know, the Eagles. I would it was it was easier to follow along with the Eagles. But um, yeah, basketball is a big commitment, and I don't think um, I was like a, so diehard that I could keep up. And uh, when you go to a school like Wesleyan, as you know, like uh, sports aren't necessarily like the most popular thing there. So mm-hmm. um, I just didn't. It the the culture around me wasn't. Um, encouraging me to like watch Philly sports and I was busy with other things uh and then my brother who was out in LA wanting to make it as a cartoonist uh had sold he had he had taught himself how to animate um using like online tutorials we're both uh have a little bit of artistic abilities and um he uh made this cartoon called sports friends about like the, the Phillies, like about base, baseball players and basketball players, what they talk about when the cameras aren't on them, but it's completely fictionalized and absolutely absurd. And uh, one of his friends saw it, uh, who worked at Yahoo Screen, which is a 
now doesn't exist anymore as a platform for like streaming video. Uh, and he said, hey, do you want to make six of these like short web series episodes um, for us? We'll pay you some money. So he left his job and he started doing that and he realized he was in way over his head. He couldn't animate himself. Uh, it, it's just so laborious to do animation. And so he knew he had this little brother who could draw, who was at the time doing my uh, master's program at Wesleyan. Um, and um, he like called me up and he was like, hey, uh, do you want to do background artwork on this? And so basically in my like nights and weekends when I wasn't doing my research, uh, I started doing some background artwork for the Sports Friends show. And uh, then after I graduated, um, I was talking to um, my professor, uh, Seth Redfield. And, shout uh, out, Seth Redfield. Yeah, shout out. Um, and uh, I told him I was going to, you know, I, I was considering doing a PhD, but I really wanted to take a shot at uh, trying to make cartoons with my brother. So I uh, dropped everything. I flew to L.A. and we started working out of his apartment. And uh, we made season two of Sports Friends where I taught myself how to do the rest of animation. Um, the, you know, the the lip syncing and the face acting and the, you know, the audio and everything. And uh, I started relearning about sports that I, I had, like was pretty rusty. And at the time, I didn't even realize like how little I knew. I didn't I didn't know who Steph Curry was. You know, like I was so out of the loop. This was this was 2013, 2014. Um, so Steph was like just rising into like real prominence. And um, when Bleacher Report saw our other cartoon and said, hey, do you want to make something for us? So we pit, we were watching Game of Thrones at the time. It was season four when Game of Thrones was still awesome. And we really wanted to combine sports friends with Game of Thrones. And we actually were thinking of doing um, a NFL meets um, Game of Thrones mashup. And it was going to be Tom Brady and it was going to be Bill Belichick. And they were going to be uh, Jamie Lannister and... Um, uh, what's his name? Tywin Lannister, uh, and they would ride their like offensive linemen like horses, and it was like this whole absurd concept. And uh, they it happened to be NBA season. They're like, "Can you make this about the NBA?" And we're like, "Okay, we can make that work because you know we were just they were gonna pay us. We're like, we'll do whatever you want." Uh, and so we went back to the apartment. We we're just like, uh, "How do we do this?" And uh, we figured something out. Uh, it took us like three weeks working nights and weekends, like crazy hours, but it was nothing new to me because I just finished doing a master's thesis and it was like, it beat debugging code, you know? Um, and um, I, uh, yeah, and then I basically taught myself as much as I could about the NBA. My brother really carried the weight of NBA knowledge. And then when we got to Bleacher Report, uh, after we had made the first episode and the second episode, um, they brought us in uh, full time. And uh, that's when we had all the staff at Bleach Report who could really bring us up to speed with every little detail about the NBA. And, you know, if we made an episode about uh, Phoenix Suns, you know, there'd be a guy at the office from Phoenix and we'd just say, like, tell us everything about the Phoenix Suns. And that's how we are able to pepper it with so many little jokes and everything. So that's a very long answer to your question. Oh, that's fine. And um, I'm just a bit curious, you know, as a Wesleyan astrophysics major myself i'm wondering if any of the skills you had while because you i think you mentioned this but you were probably if not for this project sports friends you were thinking about pursuing a phd mm -hmm. and so 
I'm curious if any of the skills that you had during your uh, Wesleyan career kind of transferred over while you started working on those projects, aside from just being able to grind for long hours, mm-hmm. like I'm sure you did for your thesis. Yeah, well, the one very obvious and not extremely helpful example is that I made a very strong effort to make the stars in all the backgrounds accurate. Um, I would I would uh, look up on Starry Night software um, all the, like, w- what the sky would be at that time of night at that angle, and I would... Uh, make sure to trace that when I was doing the uh, background artwork. Um, So that's a little detail that I think almost no one can appreciate because no one has the star fields memorized. But um, I kind of do it for Neil deGrasse Tyson because his whole like hobby horse was um, pointing out in movies when they didn't take the time to make the stars accurate. So I was like, I'll never be that person. I will always get that right. But um, in terms of other translatable skills, I mean... There's some coding you can do in animation. There's uh, in 3D animation you can do like physics is actually a big part of it. You do a lot of modeling of how particles move and everything. But the truth is, the animation I'm doing does not involve complicated physics. You know, at most it's like gravity, and uh, you can intuit how to make something look natural that way. Um, so. There wasn't. I, I I thought I could use coding. I ended up not using it. It was is more trouble than it was worth for me. Um, I would say just like the the diligence that uh, it takes to make animation and the follow through, um, the attention to detail, um, all of those things were were kind of like attitudes I cultivated uh, working on uh, my my research in astrophysics. It was um, something that you know if. My brother always found it so frustrating to uh, make all these characters move because there's so many moving parts. But for me, uh, it just it was so much simpler than doing like modeling the interior of a red giant or something like that. Uh, so I loved it. Um, so I guess it just helped with uh, getting me through a lot of the um, more aggravating parts of animation. And at a certain point, you moved from just being a brother duo team to having a full team of animators. So, uh, yeah, j- just talk a bit about how you went from that to kind of, you know, a whole professional. Yeah. Uh, so when we were working as freelancers before we went to Bleach Report, uh, we had um, a friend of a friend, Pat Keegan, who actually is from the Philly area and is a Sixers fan. Um he helped us with storyboards, and that was our first experience uh, working with um, other people. And then, but when we came to Bleacher Report, um, we very gradually started building our team out. Um, we kind of did everything in reverse, where uh, we jumped into the deep end. Typically, animators will pitch a concept to a network and or a studio, and the studio will then... Um, like the, the creator will then be like put into a big system. Uh, for us, we kind of learned everything from scratch and we built the system around us because Bleach Report had never made animation before. So uh, it, uh, we hired a couple freelancers and, uh, who came from the animation world and taught us better how to organize our pipeline because um, we were reinventing the wheel over and over. And, uh, and they taught us... Um, you know, basic animation techniques, and we would read some books and things. But um, 
things really took off when uh, we hired someone named uh, Chris Wallinger, who you'll see in all the credits now from season four onwards. You'll see the show took a big step up. So the first eight episodes, which are the first three seasons, uh, the animation is very stiff. It's very limited in what we do. And then season four, it becomes like a, a real show with weekly episodes. And that's because Chris uh, had a whole network of animators and uh, we were able to stop animating and focus all of our time on writing and voicing um, and directing. And by scaling up that way, we were able to do what we do best while the animators could specialize in what they do best, which is um, design and animation and compositing, which is the special effects and everything, and the background artwork. And uh, it just took our show to the next level. Um, and allowed us to explore a lot more storylines we weren't able to do because we were limited with what we could animate. We were we were constrained by in our writing by what we could physically produce. And so one example you'll see the very opening scene of season four, you see Kevin Durant rides away on a horse. We were never able to have a horse in an episode, and horses are the biggest thing in Game of uh, Thrones, you know, it's such a central feature. That's how they travel around. You know, there's little battles that happen that way. And so he gets on a horse, he rides away. And then we have a ton of characters in that episode, ton of backgrounds. You know, it's, it's much more dynamic. Uh, and that is every episode forward. You can see that consistency of just the, the production value keeps climbing. So when was the first time you would say that you tasted success in Game of Zones? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say hey, it was literally the first episode. So um, I was I was blown away because we were we were very accustomed to uh, sports friends and the response it would get. It would kind of be buried on Yahoo Screen, which is a platform that people didn't really uh, go to that much. Whereas Game of Zones episode one was put on YouTube and it was blasted out by Bleach Report, which had millions of followers. So it immediately had that rocket booster to leave the atmosphere to use an astrophysics metaphor. And, um, and what happened was, you know, we were making the first episode and we were thinking to ourselves, okay, you know, I know there's a lot of people that watch Game of Thrones. I know there are a lot of NBA fans, but how big is that overlap really? Like in that Venn diagram, you know, maybe there's 10,000, maybe 20,000 people that will really get all of the jokes in both things. And uh, the episode was set to air. It was a Friday at noon. And I actually went to play pickup Ultimate Frisbee, which uh, shout out to Throw Culture, which was my uh, Frisbee team at, at uh, Wesleyan. Um, I went to play pickup Frisbee in Hollywood. And um, I come back to my phone and I've got like a billion texts and missed calls from like my family and my friends and my brother's like you need to go on Twitter right now like just search Game of Zones and and I searched it and it was just it was like what we call like a waterfall of tweets where it's like constantly there were new tweets I've never seen anything like it and I was like wow I've, I've never seen something go viral from like a personal experience and then we went on YouTube and we saw it was like the number four overall like trending video in the world um because it was just this such a perfect combination of like pop culture meets sports and it was i i just hit a nerve or something with the public and uh then it was covered on espn and it was covered uh like hbo tweeted about it um i think the novelty of it gave it a, a big leg up that um the second episode did really well too 
but that first episode just popped in a way that was was wild for us and and really really new um so yeah that that was that was the that was the first time and we we tried to catch up to that moment uh in the subsequent uh episodes and i think we got back to that moment when we started putting episodes out regularly um but they were more of a a slow growing phenomenon um where we built an audience it's a little harder because you don't get that initial virality um but you kind of have to just you 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 get more diminishing returns with each additional episode so and it's interesting you say that because i mean you still you only had eight episodes in four years so that's that's interesting that the first episode was such a smash hit and then it still took four years to basically have a step up in your production yeah um we we put out two episodes a year um for a, a few years and then uh then, and there, we had a lot of loyal fans from the beginning, uh, but then you know we thought the show couldn't grow much. We thought we had saturated the market, and then uh, season four it, it grew a lot more. We got like way more celebrity interactions. Like that was the season when Mark Cuban t- tweeted about his episode. Uh, Daryl Morey friended us on Facebook and followed us on Twitter, and we started talking to him. Uh, we found that like Spencer Dinwiddie is a fan. We just get like these random people. Billy King was a fan, which was awkward because we'd made fun of him. Um, <laughs> and like, uh, and so that that was really cool. And then season five, we're like, it can't get any bigger, and it did get bigger. Uh, and we heard all sorts of additional people were fan- like, Lon- oh, Lonzo tweeted out. Um, this is season four when we when we had him come out of an egg. Uh, we had Joel Embiid tweeted about the process episode. Yeah, and I remember then that. It was just, I was so excited for us because, you know, we're Sixers fans and, and we were super into the process. And season five, we, we made an episode for Daryl Morey at the Sloan Analytics Conference. And uh, we met Sam Hinkie there. We found that he had seen uh, his episode. And, like, <laughs> that was so funny. It was just like, it became so bizarre because, like, we were nobodies. And, like, I wasn't even an, a huge NBA fan before this. And suddenly we were like becoming what felt like the Simpsons of the NBA where people were like, oh, I want to be in Game of Zones. And it was just like, I, you, you kind of just fake it till you make it. And, and out of nowhere, we were like the cartoon authority in the basketball world, which is, which is very bizarre. Yeah, so uh, I think that the whole NBA uh, meshes so uh, perfectly with Game of Thrones. Um, what do you think uh, why the NBA landscape measures so well with this concept yeah uh i honestly we were lucky um because when bleach report told us to shift to the nba we didn't realize how awesome the nba community was i think why it meshes so well is one because the nba is like such a soap opera there's so much drama there's so much like funny pettiness going on um the, the personalities are so big and everyone knows them so well because there's fewer players on the court it's not like the nfl where everyone's in a helmet there's a 53-man roster um people are cycled in and out of the league much more frequently you only know quarterbacks and like star players uh in the nba you just just it's a tighter community and i also think the fan community is a tighter community there's a lot more inside jokes uh there's just like the NBA Twitter is just one of the funniest places once you start getting the jokes. Um, like, our NBA is hilarious. Uh, and there's, like, this intimate podcasting world. And, um, yeah, so that was that was the one big leg up, is that we had big personalities, and that fits well with the drama. And then the other thing is that the style of Game of Thrones, um, it, it lends itself so much to sports in general. But um, 
you have the houses, which are so much like teams, and you have basket. I'm sorry, you have battles that are uh, so much like games, and um, you have these shifting power dynamics, and everyone's vying for the throne, which is so similar to uh, the O'Brien. I say O'Brien throne because I only think now in Game of Thrones <laughs> terms uh, the O'Brien Trophy, but um, and getting a championship. And so the the stakes are very similar, but it's just amped up. And so what's fun about it is that you can take all of these heroes, your NBA heroes, and you can put them in a, a fantasy environment that really amps up all of the qualities you already admire in them. Um, and you give it like the, the awesome music. And, and we basically are making it's like our fan fiction version of the nba where we're making it everything you wish the nba was where where the stakes feel higher and it's the drama feels more intense um and and honestly i think a a lot of that was luck you know we we kind of just like we made the first episode and then maybe it was just natural uh fandom coming out we just wanted to see these athletes as like knights in shining armor um but yeah i think that that's what resonated with a lot of people and then you made an exclusive video for the Warriors after they won their first championship, I think. Yeah. Was that your first time kind of getting a true inside the NBA moment? Um, that was definitely our first like real inside look at the NBA because before that we would see the occasional tweet from like really random people. Uh and you know, with sports friends, we would see like, like Phil Mickelson would tweet out like an ep- like his sister tweeted out like about an episode we made about him. You know, like that's what we it was like a kicker's wife or something. And, and um, then we found out Steve Kerr was a fan, and so we got an email from him and asking for us to make a custom episode for them. And this was like the season before their seventy three. This is this is like the summer before their seventy. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, it was the summer before that the season one Steph went insane. And um, we were like, oh, my God, we have to do this. Like, we're going to get a meet, like, the, the bulls of our era. And uh, so we talked on the phone to Steve Kerr, and he basically, uh, yeah, he's a big Game of Thrones fan, big Game of Zones fan, and uh, exactly the same guy as he seems publicly. He was in private. Great sense of humor, just really cool. Um and he was just telling us like all sorts of inside jokes about like things that they all those guys do and like things that were like too inappropriate for us to put in episodes about like how Draymond just curses out like everyone on the staff, but not like in a negative way. It was kind of like in a funny way, uh, you know, how Andre Guadalla like says, hold my dick every time he like puts up a three or something like that during practice. <laughs> and um, so that, that we had to make that the joke, like the big punchline at the end. But like there were also inside jokes that like we knew no one would get, but but we knew the team really loved, which I was torn about putting in because I don't like putting stuff in there that like the, that it's like very, it's so inside that you feel left out. But you know, like there's, um, I honestly, I forget his name, uh, but there's the guy who's the bartender. Um, I want to say Brandon's, uh, but, uh, he, um, he says, get what you need. Oh, Brandon like, Rush. Yeah. 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 Brandon Rush. And, um, <laughs> And I didn't know if anyone would know that, but, you know, like, they, the team thought that was so funny, so we put it in there, and uh, it was just such a fun experience, because you really got to see, I think, the chemistry of the Warriors um, from the inside, and, and, I, and, and the leadership of Steve Kerr, um, and also Nick Uren, the assistant coach, who was, like, our point person that we talked to a lot about getting these things right. Uh, and I think you see why they were such a fun team and why they worked so well that year. Um, 
and then we ended up doing it again. This wasn't really public, um, but uh, we made them a, a, a musical the following year. It wasn't Game of Thrones because or Game of Zones because we felt like we had already done that, and they wanted us to do it again when they signed KD. So we made this musical while they, where they were super villains, and then uh, their PR people were like, uh, you know, we don't want to publicly like say that we're super villains, so uh, let's not like show the reaction video to this one. So yeah, that that just uh, that's in the vault somewhere, but. Wow, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, we, we got some insider some information. Inside information. Yeah, yeah. That's nice. there you go. And I'm curious also because um, I'm curious if you've ever asked uh, NBA players for input, or have they ever? Have you ever just had an interaction with? I mean, you mentioned that Spencer Dinwiddie is a fan. I'm curious if, mm-hmm. if a guy like Spencer Dinwiddie has ever hit you in the DMs like, "Hey, this is an episode." <laughs> it's funny you mentioned Spencer Dinwiddie because so we knew he was a fan because we saw him like liking stuff on on Instagram. And uh, we had heard through the grapevine, through like Bleacher Forts, Connects, and everything. Uh, we were trying to think of someone to stand up in episode, it's season seven, episode two. You have all this scene where there's like every player in the league is sitting there listening to Adam Silver explain what's going on in the realm. And uh, we needed Spencer Dinwiddie to stand up and fight for like players' rights. Or we need someone. And we thought Spencer Dinwiddie would be a good choice because. You know, we never showed him, and we knew he'd appreciate it. And he is that type of guy. He has an interest in these things. So it worked for his character. And um, so we have him do it. I did I, – I guess uh, – I, I forget what the line is. Uh, he stands up, and he's like, uh, oh, crap, what does he say? It's been so long at this point. Um, well, either way, um, he's uh, – let us vote. He, he, I gave him a Scottish accent or something like that. Uh, he's like, we are the players uh, – something like that. And um, – he, he, he says, let us vote. And anyway, so we put him in the episode, and um, my brother gets a DM from his aunt. Um, aunt, as you say in New York. Um, and uh, his aunt is like, hey, my uh, nephew, uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, is a huge fan. Do you, do you have any like DVDs I could buy of uh, Game of Zones? And it was like the sweetest like most innocent question we're like he can watch it all for free you know like on youtube um and uh but i think uh we ended up like sending her like a shirt or something but um yeah so that was pretty funny um but um we've heard from uh, i'm forgetting the original question what was have we heard from uh yeah like have have, yeah players ever dm'd you asking you to, to like put stuff for them yeah um you know, we are pretty careful about not having too close of a relationship with players because we want to have this sense of independence. And I think when we are too, um, like, talking behind the scenes with people, uh, it, it prevents us from having our journalistic integrity in a way. Um, you know, like, we don't want to, like, take shots at people as much um, when, like, we're, like, buddy-buddy with them. Although I will say that, like, ultimately, like, no one has ever been, like, openly upset with us about what we've done in Game of Zones. Um, everyone takes it as, like, this big roast and, and takes it in stride. So that's been really nice to see. Um, but, you know, we've had, like, like uh, Giannis's people came to us and uh, uh, Nike people and asked us to do a video to promote his new shoe. Um we ended up not taking that project on, even though it would have been awesome because uh, it was in the middle of the season and we just couldn't, we did, we, our bandwidth was completely stretched too thin. Um, we, our, our company has wanted us to have voices of players in episodes, um, uh, but we also shy away from that because athletes are 
um, not always the best actors, and we think it's funnier to just do really silly British accents for them. Um, we did have Howard Beck, the sports journalist, uh, do his own voice in the Media Dale episode because he's been a huge help on the show, and he's in the office, and you know it was easy to set things up. But um, our process is is such that it's very difficult to like logistically integrate an athlete's voice into an episode. Um, because we might have to change something for a topicality reason if like the news shifts right. and um, or if we get a note and it's very hard to like go back to Joel's people and be like, hey, can we get him back in the studio to re-record his lines? Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, nothing else comes to mind. Um, you know, we, Ronnie Turioff at one point, like randomly when we made our like, <laughs> third episode was like, yo, guys, I love the show. Um, so we ended up putting him like in the crowd of episode four. Um, you'll see him and Rudy Gobert. Rudy Gobert, before he was like really big, uh, had also expressed that he was a fan. Um, and Ronnie Turioff said he was going to send us a jersey. Never did, so I'm still waiting for that. So if you guys have any connections, let us know. Because, oh, we uh, have we have all the connections with Ronnie yeah. Turioff. So, <laughs> um, yeah, obviously these episodes take a lot of time and effort. What's what do you think is the hardest part of writing an episode? Oh, God, that's a good question. Um, Adam and I. The writing process is definitely one of the more painful parts of the, pro- the creative process because it's so ambiguous and open-ended. Um, I would say um, it's it's probably committing to an idea um, and getting it from concept to a finalized script is um, one of the like the biggest gaps that we have to cross in our, in our process um, because it, we don't like any moment uh, to be like, we, we basically have this philosophy that every, like you have to have continual, what we call, what we call checkpoints uh, where it's either got to be funny or interesting in some way at like very regular intervals. We never want the audience to like be bored and to like click off because we're working in an incredibly competitive media environment now where you're getting notifications on your phone you've got twitter and instagram and everything happening around you that is trying to grab your attention and so we've got to be better than that um and so when we're writing we're you know we're trying to make sure that every line the, the perfect line um simultaneously moves the plot forward and is funny and so that's our ideal script is that every line has a point um, and moves the plot forward and is funny. And so we're trying to wedge jokes and references wherever we can without sacrificing the greater plot. We never want to feel like we're just jamming references in there. Um, we always want to make sure it's it's organically integrated in there. So that is a big challenge we have to deal with. Um, yeah, so uh, it's, it's a long process. And um, once we get that script tight enough uh, where we feel comfortable to record, that's always... Uh, a, a very big milestone in our in our process and i'm also curious because i mean the episodes of this season have been a lot longer i think the one that parodied the long night was like 12 minutes so <laughs> was it more of an arduous process to make those episodes or did you also because of having a bigger team did it have less on your shoulders in a way uh it it was it's fun. yeah it's a good question um it was an incredibly difficult episode to make because we did we had the biggest and most experienced team we've ever had making that episode and yet uh we also pushed them as far to their limits and our limits as possible um 
this is crazy, but I, the, for season six and season seven, I never took a day off for four months, both in 2019 and in 2020. Huh. Um, I worked every weekend and every night for four months straight and like sacrificed, you know, a lot of time with my friends and, and uh, it was, it was really challenging, but like we, you know, we, we wanted to make every season better than the last and we wanted to keep topping it. And, and we had our ideas were bigger than what we could manage to produce, but we never would let that get in our way. Um, and you kind of just like put, you know, like I kind of have that mama mentality when I, when I make stuff, like it's kind of no excuses. It's like, just leave it all in the cartoon and the way people leave it all in the court. It, it was weird how it synced up. Like I would see these players like Kobe and Jimmy Butler and it would, his, their attitudes actually would like feed into like how I was thinking about working hard on these episodes and to parody them, of course. But, um, so yeah, the, the, the long episode, um, that was working crazy hours. That was, um, very irresponsible in terms of like, you know, like we are, our certain people in the pipeline just had to do a ton of work, but I think everyone was excited to do it because we wanted to give fans that giant episode to cap off the show. Uh, everyone like we get in the comments, like make, you know, longer episodes. We want a 10 minute episode. We want a 30 minute episode. There was no way we were going to make a 30 minute episode because we couldn't keep the quality the same. Right. Um, but we, we managed to make this like 12 minute episode and maintain the quality to a level that we liked. Um, and it was an awesome episode, by the way. Thanks. Yeah. That, I, I'm that was like unbelievable. And yeah, better than yeah. the long night. In, uh, yeah. Films, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. that was, that was great. It was a win-win situation for us. We, we couldn't lose because, uh, either you know we had a bad finale and we were parodying Game of Thrones, or we had a good finale and we did a better job than Game of Thrones. And so like we knew that like by making the last episode this like absurd twist. You know, we and spoiler alert if for anyone who hasn't seen the last episode, I'm, you can you know pause it, but uh, or skip this part. But uh, we we don't show the final battle because in Game of Thrones the cinematography was way too dark and you couldn't see like anything for big portions of it um, and that saved us we wouldn't have been able to show anything otherwise because we, we didn't have the resources to animate it um, we actually made that scene a week before the episode came out it was like a last minute decision we weren't going to do anything we were just going to cut right to the farmer scene where LeBron is like hey did everyone see that and no one saw <laughs> it because they destroyed the media Dell so the media um, didn't exist to distribute the information so that was going to be the big joke was that like we built up to this giant battle and you never see it and we were going to try to make the ending as disappointing as Game of Thrones but we decided it was just too funny to like play the audio from the battle um, and not show the animation uh, and then uh, and then with the Paul Pierce that was that was amazing <laughs> that was so good and Thank Paul you. Pierce even he even changed his picture to that which yeah he, he changed his avatar which is so funny because you know, we were debating and we we're like, did he get the joke? You know, does he know that like, it was a kind of a spoof of his takes. Um, and uh, it's so unclear, it's still though. ambiguous because they, they showed it on the jump. Uh, Rachel Nichols showed the clip yeah. and they cut out the part where after the scene of him being coronated, um, we show him writing game of zones and he writes himself as the King and everything. Um, that didn't go on ESPN, just the scene <laughs> where he's crowned. So I yeah. don't know. We'll leave it at that. And, uh, I'm curious if you have like a favorite Game of Zones moment. Oh man, uh, there's a, there's on. a lot of moments. I would just say the episode that I I love. Um, I I have a lot of episodes I love. I I really love. Um, oh man, 
I'll just choose a random one. I love the uh, scene in the cave, in the buck scene, uh, where you see the cave paintings and you learn about the lore of our universe because I'm a huge nerd and I love, uh, you know, getting deep into the, the universe and building it out. And that was a very satisfying episode because we had had that lore in our, the back of our minds and it was just really funny and stupid. You know, you know, the white people of the forest, which are like the children of the forest. Uh, and it was very satisfying to, to show that. Um, and, you know, have uh, um, Della Vadova not realize that <laughs> they looked any different. So, oh, yeah, mine would have to be uh, when Stephen A. Smith and uh, Skip Bayless were hugging at the when the media <laughs> deal was crumbling. Uh, that was just so funny. Oh, my God. I was yeah. cracking up when I saw that. And yeah, they're the perfect Cersei and Jamie, you know? Yeah, it was so funny. I was laughing so hard when I saw that. <laughs> I also just remember, like, um, even before I watched Game of Thrones, because I basically didn't watch Game of Thrones until I went to college. And I remember I was probably in high school. I think it was a sophomore or junior. And that's when I saw, like, Game of Thrones for the first time. And I, I was just like, this is so charming and, like, weird. Mm. I, I, also, like, the, the accents. I, I guess it's you and your brother who do the accents, right? And yeah, do we all do all the voices. We just impersonate uh, Game of Thrones characters. Cause that was completely surreal. Like you doing some impressions. I was like, like, yeah. wow, this is like literally the game of zones yeah. voices. That was pretty yeah. cool. Is that Dwayne Wade? I also do Giannis, but the thing is I, I do, I do LeBron like good people of Cleveland. But um, the thing is I, I modulate my voice down. So uh, I can't do a perfect impression here. That's no, that's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> I think that also kind of adds so the charm in a way like i think like you mm -hmm. said like if you if you were like trying to do perfect impressions of nba players i mean a lot of them just you know when they're interviewed they just sound tired they're very like yeah um they have like a monotone kind of voice when they're talking to the press and that's generally what you hear there's some guys you know like kg or something you know, who are like really charismatic and and funny and everything but yeah a lot of guys like just be like yeah we're trying to take it one game at a time you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm just uh curious what are your thoughts on the final game of thrones episode oh man i mean look i used to i i'm not supposed to i think talk bad about my former company technically uh uh hbo is a sister company of turner which owns bleach report but i'm gonna go out and take a risk here i didn't like it <laughs> i don't believe so it's fine yeah uh honestly though I the show really fell off for me season five onwards. I completely um, agree. Yeah, yeah. It, it just like it, it, the magic was gone, and I think the magic is George R. R. Martin. I think like what people love was he just he he wrote about things in a level of detail and nuance, and and he wrote characters in such a complex way, and he and he highlighted things that were so unexpected, and and t did such unexpected turns. Um, and that was really the heart of the show, and that I felt was lost when, by like when season five just started slow, this slow turn towards wrapping everything up, and suddenly it wasn't a natural world, but it was instead a it turned into more of a television show where everything, all the all the there were fewer characters were introduced, and the storyline started converging rather than diverging, um, and the world got simpler, and the traveling got faster and unrealistic, um, and it lost. The, the realism uh, that made the show so great. Um, but yeah, although in terms of the finale, counterpoint, yeah. counterpoint yeah, sure. though, George R. R. Martin still hasn't written another book. So I know, I know, we have something. Um, and I, you know, I don't think he's going to finish, um, but I think he's got one. We'll get at least one out of him. But uh, 
you know, at the end of the day, like you're his age and, you know, like you're as famous as it comes, you know, like it's hard. I, 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 I feel bad that like he has to just feel like this slave to everyone who is just constantly saying, make more books. You know, like, I, yeah. I don't know what that feels like, you know, in the twilight of your life. I, he's not that old, but, you know, I don't know. I think he's super healthy, but like, you know, I, uh. I don't know if uh, you want to just hear people being mad at you for not working your butt off every day. Um, but yeah, I'd love for him to finish those things because they are a gift to humanity. Uh, I don't know if you kept up with the current NBA news, but uh, you know, Kyrie, there's like a p- potential that he may disrupt the NBA season. And in Game of Zones, he was talking about how he just wants basketball to be played in peace. So what do you think about how, you know, it's kind of the opposite of what's going on what do you think about the current situation right now yeah um i i I, first of all i think it's absolutely riveting what's going on right now in terms of like it's just so unprecedented in every dimension like the the nba being played in disney world like a pandemic you know the the black lives matter movement um all these things converging in this complex soup of of just like history being made and we're just watching it. Um, I, I, I listened to you guys podcast talking about it. I mean, I agree with a lot of what you said. It's a complicated issue. And um, uh, I, I don't know all the details that are going on. I'm not following it incredibly closely. Honestly, you guys probably know more about this stuff. I do th- will say from a game of zones perspective, um, everyone's like game of zones predicted this game you know like the truth is we just write these guys like we try to write true to like their personalities and Kyrie has always um been very outspoken very controversial has a few ideas that i strongly disagree with namely the earth being flat flat Um, yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) so i might you know have a particular grudge against him for that um and and i think we took it out by making him you know, a pseudo villain in our, in our episode. Although, you know, if you take his perspective, a lot of players, uh, get frustrated with the media. And I think for good reason, it's, it's incentivized to get the most clicks and, um, to be like popular. And that sometimes comes at the expense of nuance and at the expense of a, a player's reputation. And I would be really frustrated. Like people, uh, like Kyrie are frustrated. And as we call them, the other grumpy boys in his cohort, uh, in this show, um, but yeah, I think like now what you're seeing is those same themes playing out, but in a larger scale. Um, and it's been interesting to, it, it, you know, there, it, from a writing standpoint, it's rewarding to see that when you when you try to write as true to the characters, that it um, continues to seem like you know we're predicting things only because uh, we managed to capture some element of their personality. The uh, the last thing I'll ask um, is, are you working on any sports-related projects now, or have you moved on to someone else? Yeah, we um, – so right now we are taking a little bit of a break. That's you know why I'm in the middle, middle of nowhere. Um, but uh, we are not working on sports-related projects. Uh, we've been doing sports for six and a half, seven years now. Um, as you know, I'm not naturally a huge sports guy, and – 
there a lot of the jokes in sports become a little bit cyclical, become like a repetitive. You know, like the good team becomes bad, a bad team becomes good. Like right. a random player. You know, the, you know, like you, you when you're in this business for a long time, you you start to see patterns. And from a creative standpoint, I think we were just excited to tackle new stuff. Uh, I think. Um, for me, I've just I've always wanted to do science outreach. That's been something, and I remember talking to Seth and you know like office hours, saying like that's my ultimate goal is to uh, you know right now I'm gonna get my foot in the door by doing something sports related because that's the opportunity that's presented, and I'm gonna take whatever chance I have, but I'm gonna try to pivot my career into things I'm more interested in. Um, and I don't know if I can convince my brother to make that outer space cartoon that I've been dreaming of. But I think that we will be making something next that is more general, uh, more broad, as it's called in the industry, um, just so that we can cover any topic that we want to. We can get into philosophy, we can get into history, we can get into science. Um, and so I think you'll see a little bit more of those themes coming into whatever we do next. But we, we, as of right now, we don't know what we're doing next. But it probably won't be heavily sports-related. We may do some nods, though, you know, to the NBA. Right. We'll see. Do you have any advice for uh, brother duo trying <laughs> to make it in the NBA world? Yeah. Uh, oh, my God. I've learned a lot about working with a brother um, doing MBA stuff. So it's funny to see you guys doing what you're doing. Um, now I will say I th- you guys are similar age, if I recall yep, we're correctly. Twins. Yeah. We're so, actually we're uh, quadruplets, actually. Yeah. I, I, so I, I read yeah. that one, too, when I uh, Googled you. But um, <laughs> that's crazy. That's awesome. Um, so my brother is you know, seven great years older than me. So I think that's a very different dynamic in general. So that was a big part of our relationship was um, figuring out how to be partners, even though he was always so much older than me. You know, he was a senior in high school, fully grown, you know, had a beard, you know, uh, (laughs) and I was 12. I was 11. (laughs) You know, like I was like, I was prepubescent and I was in middle school. You know, so like he was like, a, a god figure for me, you know, because he was like cool and he was did all any, you know, whatever. He was funny, um, and then all of a sudden I was working with him, and now, you know, like I'm out of college and I've matured and I've gotten smarter. You know, I'm not like a child, and so I our relationship changed a lot, and that was something we had to figure out for a few years because he kept wanting to have total control. And I had to earn my stripes um, and that there was some friction there. But um, I think what got us through all of our conflict was a very strong commitment to honesty at all times. Um, I think that like as, as when we knew both of us were just being as honest as we can and everything was rooted in sort of an unconditional love for each other and uh, wanting for the other to be successful rather than a competitiveness, you know, like when we could bring it back to that it always allowed us to resolve whatever differences we had because those differences were generally very superficial when we took a step back and we would get so lost in the weeds of our arguments um, and not pull our heads up sometimes and say, what are we doing? Like we're arguing over like a joke about Mario Chalmers, you know, like this is not (laughs) worth fighting over. Um, And so uh, ultimately when we focused on ideas and not each other, that helped us a lot. It was getting rid of our egos um, and, and making the product the most important thing that we were debating and not 
uh, our own like person. Uh, so it was never like you're an idiot, but it was like that idea is not optimal for what we're trying to achieve. And when we kept it more as like almost a business conversation, um, that was a big shift that allowed us to be more productive and less argumentative um, and always make our arguments reason based and not ad hominem attacks, you know, um, but it's, it's tricky. Like every day, you know, we still have to, we, we fall into our brotherly dynamic and uh, we just have to be aware of that. And it's just, it's practice. Um, and I think different brothers are going to be different, but I, I don't know uh, if that resonates at all. See, when, when David has a bad idea, I just call him an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the fun part too. It's not like you can't just call your like random coworker an idiot, but you can call your brother an idiot. Uh, and that's that's what we would do it's just a healthy balance of uh you know you're an idiot but i also love you that was that was what we had to kind of figure out all right uh craig i want to thank you for joining us um it's really been a pleasure talking to you i wish you all the best in your you know future endeavors i wish you all the best and if you if you do sign show especially i i hope i hope to see that succeed it's always nice to see um west estro people out in the wild too so yeah that's uh really cool and um do you want any to give any shout outs to the uh astro department oh maybe? definitely yeah well first of all really appreciate you guys having me on appreciate that you guys are fans and and you had such detailed questions you know i can i can always tell when someone's actually a fan and versus someone's like a nominal fan so i uh, appreciate all the thoughtful questions and uh what you guys are doing i listened to your other episodes and learned a lot you know i haven't been super tapped into the nba world so uh called me up on some things um and i hope you guys keep doing this and are uh, successful at it. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely want to shout out Seth, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, the rest of the astronomy department, um, Meredith, Ed, Roy, Bill, if he's still Bill's around still there. Yeah. Bill, Bill just gave me a pass on our final actually. Oh, uh, oh, nice. Yeah. We, Bill's a cool guy. Yeah. We studied for three days and then when we were supposed to take it, he said, oh, actually, I'm not administering the final. Everybody's getting a hundreds because, you know, pandemic and all of that. Yeah. Uh, so that was really awesome. So yeah, shout out, Bill. Very it's a win-win. You guys had to learn everything, but also you got a good grade. Um, yeah. Bill's, Bill was the reason I got into the astrophysics major, um, astronomy major, I guess. Um, because uh, he had an amazing 155 class, uh, the intro class, and uh, that, that changed my whole path of my education there. So, uh, But yeah, I mean, shout out to Wesleyan in general. It was, uh, it was a place where I really matured and learned so many of the concepts and themes and philosophies that uh, undergird everything we do on our cartoons. Um, I think it's, it's, you have to have a, a strong foundation in so many you know, disciplines, I think, to like really write something that resonates and uh, Wesleyan's where I cultivated that. And so, yeah, shout out, go cards. Thank you for listening to the Getting Buckets podcast. Follow us on Twitter at GetBucketPod. We're now on Apple Podcasts, so please subscribe to us there. Follow us on Spotify. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Peace.